Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Again, my name is Yesenia Carranza. I am an admissions counselor here. And today we're gonna have a really fun and interesting conversation about the topic of homelessness. It's a hot topic. You know, if you live in LA, you drive down certain streets and you see it in front of your face. But there's levels to this. You know, there's a lot going on. So today we have two USC uh, social work experts with us. We have Benjamin Henwood and Eric Rice. <laughs> so um, we're going to start off this conversation. Um, if both of you guys can please uh, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, um, what you're doing currently or have done in homelessness, and then we'll just keep it going. <laughs> okay. Um, <clears throat> hi, I'm Eric Rice. I'm a associate professor uh, here uh, at the Suzanne Duarte Peck School of Social Work. I'm also the director of the USC Center for Artificial Intelligence and Society, but I promise not to talk about math today. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been doing work uh, in Los Angeles around issues of homelessness and housing insecurity for almost 20 years now. When I start, I do most of my work with homeless youth. When I started doing it, I was barely old enough to not be in services, and now I'm old enough to be their dad which is kind of a, a shock when you look in the mirror and all this gray hair shows up, but that's what happens if you keep doing something for a while. Um, and I, I guess just briefly, most of the work that I've done has either been around uh, issues around what we call in social work behavioral health, so it's going to be things about substance abuse uh, or HIV uh, prevention and treatment for both of those, or specifically about housing, and um, probably the housing specific stuff is what most of you in this audience would be more interested in, but um, even the behavioral health things that I've worked on over the years, for those of you who are interested in that kind of stuff, has been with uh, homeless uh, young adults and teenagers, um, almost mostly in Los Angeles, but also in some other cities and communities around the country as well. Great. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Ben Henwood, uh, and I feel privileged to work with uh, Eric Rice here and the good work he does. Uh, I'm also an associate professor here at the school, and um, my background is as a trained clinical social worker. So when I began in the field, it was as a case manager, as a service provider, working with uh, folks who have experienced chronic homelessness. Um, and uh, I did that for several years, which kind of led me to have, um, you know, sort of larger questions about a lot of the work I was doing is downstream with people, getting them off the streets and into housing through what we call a housing first approach. Um, and so in order to really pursue those answers is why I went in to get my doctoral, um, uh, do my doctoral studies. And as I was doing that, I was actually balancing. I started a housing first program in Philadelphia where I'm from, and I did that for several years. And that was a great experience because at the time, it was actually using the research that I was learning about and trying to translate that into practice. And that's a really, uh, seems like what we wanna do, but it's more difficult than it sounds. Um, and so that, that was a great experience. And then when I finished my doctoral studies is when I came out here to Los Angeles, uh, because it, it's a, you know, unfortunately a great place to do uh, research uh, on this topic. Um, so most of the work I do focuses on permanent supportive housing as a solution to homelessness. And because of the target population that I work with, those who have experienced chronic homelessness, they tend to be what 
we would consider an older adult population, uh, but, but really that means they're in their late 50s, early 60s, because they, uh, from all the years being out on the streets, that kind of accelerates aging. So a lot of the work I've done is looking at how best to implement clinical services in those settings. Um, but the, you know, the topic itself is, is pretty broad, and so other um, areas that I got involved in was actually helping the LA County with their homeless count. So that's a project that we assist with. We collect a lot of the data, which is uh, um, actually, tonight is one of the, the, what they call the point in time count. So there are lots of volunteers. Maybe some of you will be going out later tonight or did it last night or tomorrow night is the last night of the count. So there's a, a lot that goes on there, but then there's a lot behind the scenes where we collect information around who's out on the streets and we help produce those estimates. And so that's a project that uh, our team works on. Um, and, and, I've, and I've collaborated with Eric to actually look at some of these housing models for younger adults and whether they apply in the same way or different. So, so that's yeah. uh, kind of the, the focus of my research. Yeah. Thank you, thank you. Also, I do want to mention that at the end of this conversation or towards the end, we're going to have time for questions from you guys. So that's going to be exciting. Just forgot to mention that. So let's start by what is homelessness? Let's define it. You know, a lot of us might have some misconceptions. And can you guys please clarify what is homelessness? It's a it's a contested uh, it's a contested topic, really. So, so there, there are multiple definitions and, you know, being involved in the, the homeless count is a very specific definition that we use of who we consider to be both sheltered, so actually uh, spending time in a designated shelter, or unsheltered, which could mean you're living out on the streets, you're in a tent, or you're living out of your vehicle. Um, that's what the uh, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development considers homeless which is actually different than other federal agencies, right? So Department of Education uses a much different definition, uh, which would also include families who are doubled up, um, as well as uh, youth who are couch surfing. So the, the definitions themselves are not so static. No, 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 and, and, and they're not only not static, but they're really contentious sort of political uh, conversations that go around this, especially about the doubled up aspect and about for in the youth field because a lot of the agencies who work with uh, youth experiencing homelessness get a lot of their funding from the Department of Health and Human Services where the definition can be inclusive of people who are what we would think of as being unstably housed. So you're sleeping on a friend's uh, floor or a friend's couch or your aunt's couch or, or something like this that for the for youth and young adults, those are those folks are considered homeless by those uh, those other definitions, and so it, it kind of is a raging debate. And, and but regardless about how you actually cut it, all of these are individuals. Who, you know, all of these people are without a stable, safe place to live. I mean, even if you're in a emergency shelter, there's you know, that, that is a temporary thing. If you're out on the streets, you're in the, sort of the most extreme version of, 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 of homelessness. But, um, and I think that the, the, the people who you might see on a day-to-day -day basis when you're, when you're thinking about homelessness in your, in your mind are probably the individuals who are those, those most extreme cases where you're seeing people sleeping in tent cities or you're seeing somebody who's, you know, sleeping with like a collection of their belongings next to them. But, 
but there's a lot of uh, really what we think of as sort of people that are unstably housed or housing insecure, and 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 they're part of these you know systems that we think about when we're designing when we're doing. And the thing is, what's what's really cool about 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 Ben and Ben's such a great colleague in this respect, and 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 this is something which I try to do myself as well. Is, we're not just researchers with sort of like a capital R, like we're going to write a bunch of journal articles and, and, and worry about going to academic conference presentations. I mean, we're really interested in working with communities to help solve these social problems. And I think that that's a, one of the things that's really wonderful about um, social work as an academic discipline is that the professors tend to be folks who are oriented toward um, actual real-world problems and solving them, but especially here at USC, our faculty are very, very, very engaged in doing work, not just for the sake of our academic careers, but really trying to improve the community. And um, you know, and Ben, Ben is certainly you know case in point. I mean, the the, the point in time count that he sort of casually mentioned is this huge lift that that requires an enormous coordination of thousands of people to go out onto the streets and do the and do this thing and. And really, it's kind of a, from an academic standpoint, it's kind of a thankless job. Like he doesn't get to write any papers about it. But it, but it's a really important thing for the community to do because you know people will say to you, "Oh, it seems like homelessness is getting worse in Los Angeles." You know, and and when I like I'm taking you know, I'm taking an Uber ride, and like suddenly the, the driver will say, "Oh, you work on it," and I tell him, and he says, "Isn't it getting worse in LA?" And I say, "Yes, it is." And then you know, but part of why I can say yes, it is, is because Ben for the last few years has been actually counting you know the numbers of folks that are on the streets and especially the number of people who are literally on the streets in tents unsheltered and that number is the one that's been going up steadily over the past couple of years yeah i actually did just submit one paper on the homeless count and it's an interesting one that well, i congratulations i'm surprised that you're actually going to get something academic out of it yeah <laughs> which was actually looking at pet ownership amongst people experiencing homelessness because it's Part of the reason we don't publish is because the county uses that data and they put that out uh, for the public, and so that's that's fine. That's what it's there for, and it's also used uh, to submit to the federal government, which determines how much money comes to LA County, and it's actually required by HUD, so it's something that they have to have to do in order to to have those funds. Um, but we do ask a lot of questions, and one of the questions we ask is around pet ownership, um, and so we found over the past. Um, three years where we've asked that question, roughly 10% of the unsheltered population has a pet, uh, which is actually pretty important because when you think of what are some barriers to addressing this issue, many shelters will not allow you to come in with a pet. Um, people talk about being service resistant, but oftentimes that means separating from you know a companion animal, which is something that if any of you have pets is not something I think most people are willing to do. So it, it actually really is an important, you know, has important implications for what the service system looks like. And it's not something that has really gotten any attention. So anyway, I just, I did, I did want to mention that. And I think I wanted to mention one other thing about our colleague. We have a colleague, Robin Cox, here at the school who is a, a, trained as an economist. And she's done a lot of work on food insecurity. But uh, in some of our collaboration together, she's really thought of this issue in terms of housing insecurity. And that's actually helped me in, in, a, in, a, in a lot of ways think about, you know, when you talk about these definitions of who is and who isn't homeless, um, it, I don't know how fruitful that is in terms of, as opposed to thinking of food, in, uh, of housing insecurity along a spectrum. 
right? And so even if you're not categorized as homelessness, we know that three quarters of a million households in Los Angeles are severely rent burdened. So they're all at high, they're housing insecure, they're at high risk. And, that, and that's important. I think that's helped me just think about kind of the work we do and, and sort of what it means to address homelessness. It can't just be looking at people who are now actively homeless, but also thinking about those people who are at risk for housing insecurity. Awesome, thank you guys. Um, so you talked a little bit about the homeless count. Um, can you tell me how many people roughly become homeless every day and also what happens after the count? Mm -hmm. Sure. So before I answer that, I think it's probably worth saying, because I, I, um, I do watch the county politicians uh, get a lot of flack for not being able to address this issue, and I understand that. It is worth noting that uh, over the past year, there are 150 people who got in off the streets and into some form of housing. So that's a lot of people if you think each, or sorry, 130 people are getting into housing each day. So, so there's no place else in the country that is getting more people off the streets and into permanent solutions to homelessness than Los Angeles County. So I think that's worth noting. The problem is when you ask how many people become homeless, 150 people become homeless each day, right? So if you think of this as sort of bailing out a sinking ship here, there are more people coming in than are going out. And, you know, I, I don't know that it's fair to the homeless system to blame them for not being able to keep up with the supply of people coming in, so to speak. Uh, so there are larger issues here, but in terms of how many people become homeless, yeah, in the past year it was estimated 150 each day. Awesome. Um, can you touch on some of the issues that are causing homelessness? Um, maybe talk a little bit about mental health, lack of stable home, affordable housing, any, anything that has to do with these issues that are causing this. Well, I mean, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll sort of split the duty on sure. this a little bit because to a certain extent, different groups of people who experience homelessness have different drivers for homelessness. So I think what, you, what I've seen over the last 20 years in my work with youth and young adults is a little bit different than what you see with uh, adults who are more in this kind of middle-aged uh, uh, age group. But for the youth and young adults, a lot of it is a result of um, family dysfunction, really, uh, coming from pretty disorganized, pretty um, unfortunately violent and, and um, households where there's a fair amount of substance use and abuse. And so most, what you see with uh, homeless youth is that about 40% of them have been through the child welfare system. And so the ones who end up on the streets are, the, are those young people who are not succeeding in the child welfare system, right? So they were taken away from an abusive or neglectful home at some point, but most of the ones who end up on the streets are, are young people who were placed five or more times in the course of that, uh, that child welfare experience. So it's, it's, you know, so that's one piece of it. Another piece of it is, um, young people who are uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, identifying, coming from either families that are ha having trouble accepting those, tr those, those identities or from communities where those, where those uh, young people don't feel accepted for those identities. And sometimes 
that's as tragic as some of the young people that I've known who've been thrown out by family when they find when their family uh, d discovers uh, about their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And sometimes it's because those young people will run away from communities or families where they feel like those choices aren't welcomed or aren't or aren't supported. And then you also have um, uh, with with homeless youth, you also have a lot of traumatic experiences that are part of these households growing up. So unfortunately, it's something like about half of these young people have had some sort of experience of either sexual or physical violence before they end up on the streets. And then you end up by the time I usually am doing work with these young people, um, when they've been on the streets for you know six months or more, um, most of there's an even larger percentage that then experience more victimization and violence while they're on the streets. And so by the time you're working with a particular young adult, it's like 80% of them have had some sort of physical or sexual violence perpetrated against them. And so while you do see higher rates of substance abuse and maybe some higher rates of mental health issues amongst homeless youth than you would in sort of a comparable group. So, you know, what's interesting about work, somebody who's worked with homeless youth uh, for the, all these years is that I've also been concurrently a professor at universities for these time. And so it's like I, my students and my, and my, and my, and my, my field work participants in my intervention studies and the, and the folks that I'm doing community work with are, are two groups of young people that are exactly the same age, but experiencing radically different contexts. And, you know, you, you see their um, <clears throat> higher rates of mental health problems, especially depression and post-traumatic stress and anxiety. A lot of that's because of these traumatic things which have happened to these young people and, and, the, and the ramifications of that. And you see higher rates of substance abuse, but you don't necessarily see higher rates of substance use. I mean, college students party a lot. And so do homeless youth. I mean, part of it is kind of being a 20-year-old. I think a lot of what's in, what really differentiates the two groups is that the context of going and getting drunk on a Friday night when you get to go home to your dorm room versus you go and sleep in a car afterwards is a radically different experience. It's gonna, one of them is going to lead to, like, you know, you drink too much, your friend holds your hair while you puke. In, in the other context, it's like the cops arrest you and you spend the weekend in jail. So it's, it's you know, it, so there's interesting things about working with adolescents that it's, well, where is the line between this is just being an adolescent, but who is in a really crappy context versus you know, what is, what is it that is about, you know, homelessness itself? So, um, but the drivers for homelessness for adults are a little, are a little bit different. You know, you can talk about some yeah. of that. Yeah, and I might, I might even kind of just answer the question sl slightly differently to begin with, because, right, I, I just from a historical perspective, mo like modern day homelessness, what, what you think of when people talk about homelessness, the, the person on the street who's visible, uh, perhaps talking to himself, ha has a, uh, some sort of mental health condition, right? So that's something that, you know, in the, didn't, you didn't see that in, in the 1970s, really. Um, and starting in the 80s, all of a sudden it became a problem. Um, and I, I, I think that's not some, you know, especially kind of given our age, we're not used to that if you, if you lived your whole life uh, seeing this. But so, so, so the question is, why, why did that happen? And there are different ideas, but some of the work that our colleague Dennis Colvin at the University of Pennsylvania did was pretty illuminating in the sense that they, they actually looked at and tracked who's homeless over time. And what they found was actually 
there's a there was a group of people who became homeless in the early 80s, um, and they sort of stayed homeless for a long time because we didn't have good interventions, and 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 that's who became chronically homeless in this country. The question of why they became chronically homeless it has a lot to do has a lot to do with a lot of things, and and I just want to say, racism is surely surely one of them and, and an important factor. But if you actually look at what happened in the eighties, pretty com- complex in the sense of people talk about deinstitutionalization, shutting down of hospitals. The timing for that doesn't actually work out. That happened well before uh, we actually saw this problem. I think probably contributed somewhat. But really what we saw was um, we, we saw a contraction of the economy. Uh, so there was a huge recession that happened. The federal government slashed, right under uh, the Reagan era, slashed uh, benefits. So if you look at the amount of housing that HUD, the amount of affordable housing that they, that they allocated was about half a million units a year, say in 1975. You get to 1980, it was about 90% less. And it's never really recovered. So we've never, since then, have not invested in affordable housing in this country through the federal government. Um, and the last thing, and this is the part that I think Dennis Colhane made, was a kind of interesting discovery that really looking, that was the end of the baby boomer generation. So you had a lot of people hitting the workforce and very few jobs. And so a lot of people just got pushed out and there was no safety net and there was there were no job opportunities. So I think that's like telling in a lot of ways when you think about it. But if you're talking about today and why is it so bad in Los Angeles, there are lots of risk factors. And surely the ones that get the most attention are mental health and addiction. And those are those are indeed risk factors. Mm-hmm. But by and large, I think what what what's become most clear is that really we have a housing affordability issue. And and right, every sector of of uh, society feels that. So, you know, most people are spending way more than they can afford if you think about roughly you should be spending 30% of your income. But because we have such a lack of housing and so much inequality that drives up the prices of housing, there's a whole group of people that have just been priced out. There's no safety net. There's nowhere for them to go. And actually, there was a really good study that the uh, um, folks at Zillow did where they were looking at uh, the relationship between the, the price of rent and, and homelessness. And they were able to kind of figure out that for every 3% increase in rents each year in Los Angeles, you should expect between two and 3,000 more people to be on the streets. Pretty direct relationship there. So it's not to say that there aren't important risk factors that need attention, but you know the big elephant in the room is if you don't have housing out there that people can afford, what's that going to lead? Right. You know, so I, there's no getting around that part, and that's an important issue. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, as most of you know, we have three different departments of study here at the USC Suzanne DeVore Peck School of Social Work. We have adult mental health um, and wellness. We have children, youth, and families, and we have social change and innovation. Can you talk a little bit about how homelessness is impacting each one of these? Like, say you're coming in here and you're interested in one of these, and you don't really realize how it's so interconnected. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll just start to say that, you know, there's there's no there, there's no part of the work we do where homelessness doesn't touch it. So there, you, you'll see this across departments, and whether you're interested in sort of clinical practice, whether you're in a school setting, a hospital, 
you know, a- any kind of agency that you're in, somehow homelessness will touch the work that you do. It, it's it's become that big of an issue. So I think any placement you get, whether it's the focus or not, you'll you'll see it come up. Um, I also think from a policy perspective, you know, uh, there, again, there's no there's no aspect of policy at this point, uh, especially locally, where you know this is not an issue that people are trying to grapple with, right? Because homelessness, you know, it, it clogs up, uh, it's criminalized and it clogs up the jails. It costs a lot of money. People end up in ERs when they don't need to be in ERs. It's we're spending a lot of public dollars to address this issue because we don't have better solutions. And so, I, I mean, I really think every, you know, school systems, we talked about definitions, but, right, so even though the homeless count says there's close to 59,000 people from last year, they're, uh, in the school systems in LA County, they estimate that over there, there are over 70,000 homeless students. So again, that's how can there be more homeless students than there are homeless individuals, that's a definitional thing. But the point is across schools, <clears throat> You know, how do you teach when people don't have, uh, kids don't have a home to go to? So anyway. Yeah, and I think, you know, with, within the within our school, you know, if you're interested in homelessness, but you're also interested in children and children and youth, right? I mean, there's lots of classes where, you know, homelessness is going to be a topic that gets covered. And one of the things that Ben mentioned uh, kind of in passing, but it's really important to think about is that, so much of your training as a MSW is as an intern, right? That's really where the the hands-on learning around being a social work practitioner happens. It's gonna be these internships where you spend 20 hours a week for two years in a placement at an agency doing work. And we have uh, so many placements that touch on homelessness. So if you're interested in, as a, a pop, population wise, you're more interested in adults. There's lots of you know placements within the Department of Mental Health where you where your focus would be more on mental health, but you're going to work with you could work with homelessness. If your interest is really explicitly on housing, there's definitely agencies that are doing housing that you know people get placed with. Um, and likewise with uh, children, youth, and families, if that's your focus instead, you know there are pl- lots of placements within the the Department of Children, you know, and Family Services which have you know, enormous uh, points of connection to this issue of homelessness. There's agencies that serve homeless teenagers. There's agencies that serve um, you know, homeless families. Um, and then within the policy context, I mean, there's two different angles to that. I mean, one is that certainly homelessness policy is a huge issue in LA County and in the city of Los Angeles. Um, Probably because of the upcoming presidential election, it's going to become the heat's going to get turned up on that even more. So it's probably going to be an even more um, timely uh, set of topics that folks will be covering in their classes and thinking about and that internships are going to be focused on. Um, But also within the context of the policy um, arena, sometimes people who are interested in research tend to gravitate toward that particular concentration um, although certainly I'm in the department, of, or I don't really want to have departments anymore, but I'm in the area. I don't even have departments anymore. Yeah, I don't even for, the, for the curriculum. For the not, curriculum, not, for the not, curriculum, not, right. Not so for, for the curriculum, like my, my work has been grounded in the, the children, youth, and families, but I do an enormous amount of research and community work. And, and likewise, you know, Ben also do, does that work. And we've each had 
over the over the last several years, MSW interns who in their second year have placements with us specifically. So I've had uh, I had two interns, uh, then three interns, and then two interns, and then one intern. And I think this is the first year in five years that I haven't had for an entire school year at least one intern who's in their second year who's working with me. Um, you know, for their 20 hours a week working on one of these homeless youth research projects that we've got going on. And probably I'll have an intern again next year because it's, it's, it's not only a great opportunity for students to get involved in things, but it's really nice to have fresh eyes, right? I mean, that's one of the great things about working with students is that they, as a, as a faculty member, students push you in ways that your colleagues don't. Like, we start talking about the same stuff over and over again. Yeah, sure, Ben's gonna bring up something that maybe I haven't thought about before, but you know, we get we get used to the 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 the, the lingo, the questions that we think are the relevant ones. And oftentimes students ask the fundamental questions or think about things in very different ways. And it's really great to have that energy around and 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 also it's just great to have research projects that are community engaged projects where you have you know, students that are our students to get an opportunity to do it. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that we could staff those projects, but having students as a part of it is just, I mean, it's, I mean, it's fun. It's part of the bottom line. It's just kind of, it's, it's, I like it. Yeah. So. We've had student placements for one of the initiatives we have is uh, the, the Grand Challenge and Homelessness, which is really, it's a it's national through the American Academy of Social Work and Social Welfare. And uh, I help lead that and it's co-sponsored uh, with a colleague at NYU, but we've had a, a placements for the Grand Challenge each year that will focus on the count, right? So they help out around the count and the organization for that, that project. They also will help out one of our departments, um, the Sky Department, for the past few years has had all students um, draft policy proposals uh, that relate to homelessness, and so we'll take those policy proposals and try to disseminate those. They're up on our website for the Grand Challenge. Um, and then this past year in particular, and I actually have a copy here if anyone wants to take a look, but part of it was thinking, look, there's a big election coming up and you don't hear a lot about homelessness from the candidates. And so this is a, a collection of policy proposals written by experts across the country to really say what would move the needle. And our goal, and so now we have this, and our goal is to get this into the hands of some of the candidates and ask for a response, uh, as well as to get this into um, you know members of Congress who who can have an impact on this issue. So you know it's it's it is the research, it is kind of some of the policy work we do, um, and of course you'll encounter this in, in terms of your placements and your clinical encounters as well. Awesome, thank you guys. Um, when it comes to homelessness, are we being proactive or reactive? Reactive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Can you elaborate? <laughs> I struggle mean, elaborate. I mean, I, I, I feel like, unfortunately, I think that the United States. Bruce Jansen wrote this book many years ago. He was a, a he's a now emeritus faculty here called the the Reluctant Welfare State. You know, the United States has not been a very proactive. Uh, society or country in addressing uh, social welfare issues and in really creating social safety nets that are progressive and really thinking about trying to solve problems before they happen. We tend to solve problems once we see them. And I think part of why 
there's been so much more political will to address homelessness in Los Angeles is partly in the last few years is partly because the gentrification and development of some of the places, um, especially around downtown, where a lot of people experiencing homelessness used to live fairly invisibly have been developed. And now those, uh, you know, the people are living on the streets in much more visible places than they used to, which are now freeway underpasses and things like this. And while it's very difficult to necessarily have like a good, like data-driven things, I don't know that we've actually ever collected good geography on exactly where everybody is, but I certainly remember 15 years ago going to what we call Skid Row and seeing vastly larger numbers of individuals living there and not seeing lots of individuals under underpasses. And now I see lots of individuals under underpasses and not and not the, the same. I mean, there's still a lot of people living in our Skid Row area, but it's not like it used to be. And that, unfortunately, has made it so that I mean, the good, the good news, the bad news of that is that there are a lot of human beings who are continuing to suffer around homelessness. The good news of it, because we're, we are such a reactive society, is that when it's in our faces, we tend to deal with these things. But it's kind of like we wait for the problem to get so big that we, we have to do something about it before we do something about it. And, and, you know, and I think one thing that's nice about social work as a discipline is that we tend to be sort of the maybe the, uh, the the slice of the professional environment that doesn't act in totally reactive ways. We tend to try to think about problems before they happen. We try to present solutions to things that we see as upstream problems that will happen downstream when they're still upstream. Um, but, as a, but as a society, I think that we're pretty reactive about things. And so I, I, would, I would love to be able to say that we're really thoughtful about how rental, how the booming economy is going to create rental price, rental price increases and how we're really preparing for affordable housing units to make sure that working class families don't fall into homelessness. That's not happening. It should, but it's not. So I don't disagree. And but I this, also say things more cavalierly than you do. Well, so. <laughs> and if this were a true false question, I, I would go with reactive. However, I will, I, I'll add a, a few caveats to that. So um, yeah, this is not a problem that happened overnight. It's been decades in the making. And so to think that just because all of a sudden people are now care about this issue and want to engage and, and are willing to have their tax dollars go to it, it's not something that's going to be easily solvable just because of the timetable we're talking about. Mm -hmm. That being said, uh, you know, the Veterans Administration that's in charge of right of um, the, the, the care for our, our veterans in this country um, has actually done some remarkable work. And in part, they've done that because they they used um, evidence based practices that have you know, been researched and we know works in particular housing first. And they changed their program models around um, to take a housing first approach. And since 2007, actually, the number of uh, homeless veterans has been cut in half. Uh, and in some places, they've been able to effectively eliminate veterans' homelessness altogether in some cities. Um, and so that's, that, to me, is kind of a remarkable story of, like, when you make data-driven policy decisions and you have the political will to actually scale this up and to invest, right? 
that you can have a significant impact uh -huh. on, on, on the issue. And why I'm a little bit optimistic is because for, for the first time since I've been doing this work, we actually have local policymakers who have um, now requested that information from the research community. So actually at, at USC, we have the Homeless Policy Research Institute, uh, which convenes uh, uh, local and national researchers to come together to answer policy relevant questions. So, you know, the mayor's office, the Homeless Services Authority, the uh, county officials, when they want to know something, they don't just make it up. Uh, right. I mean, they still sometimes do, but <laughs> at least they're asking questions and they're asking, you know, do you have answers to this? And I think that's, uh, that's to me, a promising development. And I think, you know, it, it's we've been able to identify the gaps in our knowledge and where we don't have data and where we need it. But I think that that's a promising turn. So, you know, while we are reactive, I, I see I see signs that um, that maybe change as as we see, you know, the relationships between some of these issues. Yeah, and I don't mean to come across as being, you know, pessimistic. I mean, I'm I'm cynical about sort of the the, the conservative streak in American politics that's pretty entrenched, but. That doesn't mean that I don't think, especially in cities and counties like Los Angeles, where you do have leadership of some pretty thoughtful people who are ask who are asking hard questions and turning to experts within the community, experts within the research community to try to find out what best practices are and what are viable solutions and looking to people to come up with novel creative solutions as well and to try to test those things out. I mean, I think you know, we, we don't, we don't, we don't, it can feel like it's very bleak because the problem is getting, uh, you know, slowly, steadily, it seems like the problem is getting worse, even though what, you know, Ben was describing is that, you know, there's this great, um, the number of people that are being placed into housing is, is more than any other city in the country, but we just have more homelessness, uh, you know, uh, with, the, with the scale of our homelessness problem is bigger than it is in any other city in the country. But yeah, I mean, I interpret interpret my comments as 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 passionate, sort of cranky, you know, academic cynicism, not as not as a, a lack of optimism, because I think that I, I do think that we're we're definitely heading in the right direction. And one of the things that's amazing about what's happened in Los Angeles is that voters said we want to do something. So like now, now that this problem has become as visible as it is, yes, tax us more. I mean, who in America says, yes, tax me more? Nobody. But we did in Los Angeles, both at the county and at the city. And then and the amount of resources that we have for addressing homelessness is like quadrupled as a result of those investments by the citizens of this, of, of, our, of our county and of our city. And, and that's amazing, too, because those funds, because they're locally generated, mean that we have a lot more control over those funds than we might if we were dependent upon funds coming from the state of California or funds coming from the federal government because, you know, those tax initiatives don't go anywhere until, you know, uh, I don't even know what the time limit on those tax initiatives are. Ten years. Ten years. I mean, well, that's the other amazing thing is that whoever put this together and the voting pot and the voting populace that voted them in and pre voted them in pretty, you know, resoundingly as well, which is amazing as well is that 
you know, 10 years is a long enough time period to have that kind of money to actually do something. I think if it had been for a year, it would have been like, okay, that's great. Thanks. But how are we possibly going to move the needle with an influx of cash for just one year? Because this isn't a problem that happened overnight. This is a problem that took decades to be created. So it's going to take, you know, years for us to actually address the problem effectively. You know, hopefully not decades to address it, but a decade is a long time to have that large of an influx of capital to fight the problem. Yeah. Um, and just to give you some idea of scale, you know, when that when those measures were passed, uh, we were getting about $120 million from the federal government uh, for homeless services. And uh, the, the measure that was passed through a sales tax is expected to generate about $350 million a year for 10 years. So that just gives you some idea of the, of the scale. You know, we, that's like triple what we you know, would have without the federal government. And that doesn't even include what, what Eric was talking about, which is the, the, um, the tax, the, the bond measure, which is you know, over a billion, it's like 1.2 billion to actually develop more housing. So there's, there's quite a bit um, locally, there's more coming at the state level. Um, so yeah, hopefully some of this will start to have an impact on the numbers. So it's a great time to get involved in, in, in working on, you know, as a social worker, working in the, the field that is homelessness, because I think that there's going to be a lot of momentum and a lot of excitement um, and also a lot of job opportunities to be working in this space. And certainly, I mean, one of the things that I've heard from some of the, the policymakers at, at, at the LA Housing Service Authority is the sense that as this influx of, of resources has come in and there's going to be more people who are going to be put into housing interventions, they're going to need a, a workforce that can help actually support people with therapy services, help place people into those units. And, and so it's a, you know, for you as potentially, you know, social workers just getting out of school, it's not just an opportunity as a, you know, a thing to study while you're a student, but it actually is a career trajectory and one that's really rewarding. I and mean, there's nothing better than actually working on and this is, I think, one of the things that I love about this work is that, you know, most people, I think when they go home at the end of the day, they feel like, wow, this seems like a really terrible problem and I wish I could do something about it. And I think that being in social work, working on this issue, working in this field, having these, you know, working on these, on these projects and these policy, you know, initiatives, you know, you're involved in being a part of the solution. So it feels a lot less crappy when you see people suffering in this way to feel like you're in exerting your energies at your, you know, in your work on a day in a day out basis to actually try to put a dent in those problems. And yeah, you're only, you know, for me at least, I feel like well, I'm only one guy who's only doing so much and like, you know, how many people did I house today? Zero people. I wrote a paper, but you know, some days I feel more optimistic about it than that. But I mean, but if you're, if, especially if you're thinking about doing, you know, practice oriented work, I mean, you could literally go home at the end of the day and say, yeah, I put three people into housing today. Like, that's awesome. You know, that's, that's, you know, that's a really, that's a real contribution to your world. And that's, that's really important, you know, and, and to have a, a life and a career that you feel has meaning mm -hmm. is such an important thing. Like there's kind of a, philosopher from mid 20th century named Viktor Frankl that had this book called Man's Search for Meaning. He sort of said, well, you know, Freud with all of his sex focus and all that stuff, like he's missing the point. Like human beings need purpose. We need meaning. We need our lives to mean something. And I think that social work as a field and social work, especially at USC where we're so community engaged, none of us suffer from 
a sense of a lack of meaning. In fact, we all feel very, I think, invigorated and excited and happy about coming to work because we're doing something that matters, you know, and that and that feels good, even if I can get a bit snarky and cynical about it at times. Like I mean, the vast majority of the time I wake up in the morning, I'm very happy to be alive and very happy to go to work every day because I get to work on something that matters and like that feels good, you know, and, and there's nothing that can't, can't beat that. If I could say one more thing about the importance of the social work perspective in all of this, because uh, it is really important that we get involved in this issue. And and uh, I mean, I think have, have a, a significant voice because I can't tell you how many uh, meetings I'm in where the discussion is around the numbers. How do we get the numbers down? Right. How do we get people off the streets? It's not so much the right? What's, what's the best way to do it? How are people going to have meaningful lives like you're talking yeah. about? And so, you know, if you don't think this through, it's, that's why people end up be, be giving keys to an apartment with no furniture, in it, right? Because you didn't think about how is that going to feel? I mean, you come in off the streets and there's no place, you know, that that's not going to work and people aren't going to be successful. And I think, you know, I think we have a strong voice in talking about that. Um, and so it's, it's, yes, the numbers are important and sure. I want to see the numbers go down, but that, that can't be all we're talking about, right? We need, we need to have that, those, those conversations about what people need, the kinds of supports they need, what it's going to take for them to have a meaningful life and for this to actually like make, make a difference because, you know, living out on the streets is, is awful as we can all imagine, but so is being completely isolated by yourself so, you know, I think it's just an, it's important that we, we are there at the conversation at the table to remind people of this sometimes. Yeah. Um, according to the LA Times, $619 million was spent on homelessness last year. How, and, and we know that the governor is proposing more money. Can you guys talk a little bit about how, um, you know, the potential impact of those funds? Where is it going? Well, 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 one quick issue just around the right the $1.2 billion bond. So if, if you follow the LA Times, one of the big issues has been that was passed how long ago? Two, two years ago, and a half years ago. Um, there, just now the first unit has come online, right? So, so for two years, we passed all this money and there no more people were able to get in off the streets because of that. And I think that was very frustrating to a lot of people. Um, on the other hand, it makes sense. It takes time to actually build a building, right? And once the funds come and you got to get zoning and permits. So, right, these, we, we understand that. But I, but I think that there, there is a lot of resource, resources coming in, but we've also seen some significant stumbles. And so, you know, when, when the, how, the Homeless Services Authority goes from a staff of, you know, 50 to 300, there's, you know, there's a lot that happens. And so I, I think the, the funding's crucial and we're seeing more of that. And, and I think what's pretty encouraging is it's not just through the taxpayers, it's through, you know, Apple just announced they're gonna dedicate $1.5 billion to housing and homelessness. And it's that, that's in partnership with the governor. And so I think we'll see more and more of that. I just had a conversation with some colleagues at Deloitte Consulting who told me this is their signature issue. And I was a little bit, it's like a lot of people's signature issue at this point, but it, there is an interest. And so I, I think the, the funding is really important, which I think was your question. 
but the planning is also really important. And, and I think that's where at this, you know, I don't see a master plan that includes not just how are we going to build more housing, but how are we going to have adequate transportation so people can get to jobs, right? There, there isn't that sort of master plan yet. And I, I think that's, you know, that's, that's problematic mm-hmm. at this point. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ecosystem of Los Angeles is not the easiest one to just throw money into and expect that just by more dollars that there's going to be an instant fix to housing problems. Because part of it is that, you know, like we were talking about earlier, affordable housing is very, very scarce. The areas within Los Angeles, and this is true of really any major city, I mean, the places where there are the most jobs, even low-level service jobs that people can get, tend to not be areas that are terribly affordable to live in. I mean, there's a lot of jobs that you can get in Westwood or in you know Venice Beach, but there's not a lot of affordable housing there. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, Venice Beach was a place where there was affordable housing, but that, that's like ancient history, right? So it's not... So that's a challenge. And so you see, you know, one of the things that we've seen with some of the projects where, um, at least I've seen it in the context of some of the youth projects where we've given rental subsidies to, to homeless youth so that they can get apartments. You know, the only apartments that they can afford are really far out from, from, from the urban center, right? So like you can get an apartment, you know, out in the Eastern part of the county or up in the Northern part of the county, but then it's a, an hour and a half commute to get into the city which is where your social life is, because that's where your friends, you know, live. That's where maybe the jobs that you've, you know, been hunting for while you've been, you know, waiting for this apartment are. This is where the caseworkers that helped you get this apartment live. And so it's it's really it's very 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 challenging. And and you know and so like Ben was suggesting, you know, there's it's it's more than just housing. And then on top of it, because there's there's such you know there isn't a lot of cheaply available land. So it's not just that we need to build new buildings, but there's not like an affordable piece of property somewhere hanging out just, you know, right next to downtown. That doesn't exist anymore. And so, um, you know, and when communities, and unfortunately communities are somewhat, are sometimes somewhat resistant to new you know, buildings coming in that are going to be, you know, designated for people who've been experiencing homelessness. And so that's, that's something that has to, that takes some time to, you know, work with communities to get them to, you know, be comfortable with, you know, you know, these housing developments. So, you know, none of that happens very quickly. And so it's, it's, it's interesting to just sort of think about like, oh, that number seems really big. And what if we just, you know, I don't know, parceled out a check for each person who's homeless and wouldn't that just take care of the problem unto itself? And I'm, but I'm not sure that that's a really, you know, sensible thing to do because that's, you know, while that could be in a simplistic way, a very short term, seemingly silver bullet kind of solution, there's no longevity to that, right? So part of the point of this 10-year investment of much more funds is to create some sort of system of housing and buildings that will that will stand past that decade of when, this, when these, you know, funds are available that will help us sustain, you know, helping people when they become, um, when they experience homelessness in the future too, not just solving, you know, the, the number of individuals on the streets right now tonight. So it's, all of that makes it really complicated, but there's a lot of willpower to do this now, and there's finally resources available. But I think that 
it just isn't going to happen quickly. And I think that sometimes, you know, it makes for splashy headlines to say things like 600 and what is it, 19 million? Mm -hmm. Is that the number? Yeah. Where it have been spent and what, you know, what, what's there to show for it? Like that sounds really sexy and it's going to sell you, you know, you know, banner space on the website or whatever is the equivalent of, you know, modern day technology, you know, you know newspapers, but like that, that's kind of like, you know, being a bully, you know, to say, to, to write a headline like that. It's not really very sensitive to the fact that there's a lot of people working really hard to do something meaningful with that amount of money. Right. Plus it would look very different if that 619 million was juxtaposed with what they expected was going to be 300, uh, you know, 20,000 for a single unit has now, you know, gone up to over 500,000 for a single unit. So when you start doing the math, that 620 million actually isn't going to get you very far if you're trying to build your way out. So, you know. Yeah, which is also another interesting thing is like, I think building your way out probably isn't the, the solution, uh, you know, to this. And, and the challenge then is that the rental subsidy model, which seems to work really well in the short term, even though it's got some of these problems that I mentioned about, you know, public transportation, et cetera. Um, you know, is that necessarily something that's long-term sustainable? I mean, what happens the next time that person is in financial straits, you know, and, you know, are they, is it, are we just kind of creating like a, uh, you know, we're catching people repeatedly throughout the course of their life as they, as they fall down and, and trying to help them get back up on their feet faster. I mean, maybe that's not a terrible plan, but maybe we could try to do something that's a little bit more proactive, as you said before. Mm -hmm. um, so. so you talked a little bit about how maybe just throwing money at the problem or just giving money to the individual is not going to help. Can you discuss a little bit of um, some preventative measures for homelessness? Homelessness prevention. Sure. Um, I mean, I think, well, let me talk a little bit more from the youth perspective for just a second, because I think that I've got a better, I feel like I have a, a more informed answer to this. And maybe if you want to talk about sort of adult prevention a little bit, but a lot of homeless youth prevention needs to be focused on the systems that high risk youth get trapped into over time. Right. And unfortunately, as Ben has mentioned before, a lot of this is about racism and about homophobia and things like this as well, right? So, you know, the juvenile justice system is a big pathway toward homelessness for a lot of individuals. That's something that is, you know, unfortunately disproportionately leveled against communities of color, you know? And, and so, but even with that reality in place, you know, we could do a lot more to think about, okay, you're a young person who's gotten caught up in the juvenile justice system. You're now at high, high risk for becoming homeless later in, in, your, in your adolescence. What can we do to create programs that are about getting you back into school, getting you job training, um, helping expunge your records if that's necessary so that you can uh, not encounter the sorts of obstacles that are eventually going to lead to your inability to be employed and further, you know, interactions with the justice systems. And then, you know, the same things that get you something that is uh, expungible when you're 17, get you sent as, you know, when you get into a fight, it becomes an assault charge. It's a felony. Suddenly you are, you, you know, you have a felony record and you're not employable when you're 18. You know, the same behavior, you know, six months earlier is, is, you know, a, a much more minor, you know, infraction in your life. But yet, you know, adolescents don't grow up the instant their 18th birthday hits, right? And so this is, 
And, when, and so I think a lot of our prevention efforts really have to be focused on where we know homeless young people are coming from. So with that, those young people are coming from foster care system where people are having lots and lots and lots of placements. Those young people are very unstable. We, need, we know that. We can address that there. Juvenile justice. And then the other places that we can, we can really do, I think, a much better job of addressing homelessness prevention in the context of our schools Right now, I think a lot of the efforts that we have within the school system, within the public school system, are about helping students who are identified as having housing insecurity or homelessness and trying to help them to get school lunches and, and, get, and get books and showers and, and things like this, which is great. That's awesome. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I think there's a lost opportunity for us to be thinking a little bit more proactively about young people who might be kind of on the margins of graduating, on the margins of you know, living in violent and disorganized families, things that social workers in schools are keyed into, but you know, they're probably dealing with them on a case-by-case -case basis when they see these issues and they're really, and they, and they feel like they can get some traction on it. But I don't know that we support systemically enough of these efforts to really try to identify and create programs to try to prevent those things you know, for those young people before that happens. And I think that's really about this idea about being proactive, right? I think that social workers are really good at talking about the larger contexts that things happen. Like we're, we are biological beings, we are psychological beings, but we live in families, we live in communities, we live within systems. I mean, this is all of the perspective that we think about. And that makes us fairly downstream thinking people. Like we think about problems that are coming before they happen. And, and so we need to start being a little bit more active in some of the systems where we might not be as active. Like in child welfare, social workers are pretty present, right? So, and that's where some of the best homelessness prevention stuff is happening, in part because I think there's so many social workers there. School social workers, there's not enough social workers per school to really be taking on this next level of work. I don't think that there's enough social workers doing this kind of work in the context of the juvenile justice system. I mean, that's not really the way that that system is set up. And so I think that, you know, we, we could we could be much more active as a field in these spaces and make a dent. So one thing to add around the prevention piece is that, you know, if you think of what we know quite a bit, actually, about the homelessness. But if there's one area where we're pretty much lacking you know, effective interventions, I do think it's around prevention, right? Because, uh, and I think this has to go, and it goes back to this issue of prevention coming out of the homeless service sector, right? There's not actually that much money for it. And so the trick is how to use that limited amount of money to target not just people at risk, because, you know, again, three quarters of a million people are, you know, at risk in the sense of they, they have a huge rent burden in, in Los Angeles, but not all those three quarters of a million are gonna become homeless, right? So, so who do you give those, you know, those precious prevention dollars to? And we don't actually know the answer. People are trying to figure this out and, and like who would become homeless if they didn't get this, but, but our models are pretty poor, I would say at this point, and we're just getting, we're just starting to figure some of this yeah. stuff out. That being said, right, I mean, I think uh, the fact that, you know, homelessness, again, we're talking about this as it, it's really, a, if you think of it as a symptom of so many other ills that we have, um, and if the school systems were better, if there was free childcare, right, uh, 
if if there was better planning when people were discharged from jails or hospitals, all this contributes to and could be considered prevention work if, if homelessness was your was your issue. But I think there's only there's only a limited amount uh, of prevention work that the homeless service sector can do. And I think it, it, it makes sense that it's focused more on the issue of once people actually become homeless. Mm-hmm. And so then the question of like, how do we get the rest of these systems working well so we don't keep having people become homeless is really, a, it's a bigger question. And um, and actually, you know, it's interesting just getting back to the Grand Challenge. Yeah. You know, one of our of our colleagues, uh, Larry Palinkas, heads up the Grand Challenge on the impact of climate change, the social impact of climate change. And that actually is driving lots and lots of people to end up in homelessness, right? Their communities are getting wiped out, the sea levels are rising. It's gonna have an extraordinary impact and lead a lot of people to be displaced, and, right? And so, you know, you gotta address climate if you wanna address homelessness. And, you know, so the, these things are interrelated, you know, and it's hard not to, but again, if you get to the homeless service system, there's there's a, a finite amount that, that the system, that system can do. So, well, and, and that makes a really interesting point, right? I think that about the, the homeless service system can only do so much for prevention because ultimately, I think part of why the child welfare system seems to have done a little bit better job thinking about homelessness prevention is because um, it as a system seems to be more concerned with what happens to folks immediately after they leave their system than some of these other systems, right? Like you leave a hospital and it's not really the emergency room's job. I mean, my brother, my younger brother's an emergency room physician. It's not his job to figure out whether or not you're going home someplace safe. Like his job is to like help you with your, you know, your broken ankle or whatever it is that brought you to the emergency room. So, but the child welfare system does seem to care what happens after people turn 18, at least for the next few years. And so, and so in part, they're tracking a little bit what happens to those folks, which allows you to then get some insights into who's within this group of people that kind of, uh, you know, yes, on some level, anyone who's been in the foster care system is at risk for becoming homeless, but most people who come out of the foster care system do not become homeless. So then which ones do you target your resources for? And, and so because the state, meaning the state of California or like the, the government as the state cares about children who've been entrusted to their care, they're going to track them for a few years after they leave. And so they're going to find out what happens and finding out that those people became homeless isn't acceptable to them, which is why the age of, of you know, services for foster care extended from 18 to 21 in the state of California to try to deal with that issue. Um, I don't know that the juvenile justice system is thinking the same thing. They're thinking, well, we dealt with you for the, you know, the, the, the crime that you committed. You did your time. Now you're not our problem anymore. They're not thinking about homelessness prevention. And so part of it is that, you know, we as a, as a larger community and set of systems have to start thinking a little bit less myopically about, you know, this is my job and that's not my job, which is, again, I think part of the challenge that, you know, social welfare in the United States faces, but social workers are really good about thinking about cross across these systems and thinking about these coordination because, you know, we tend to have, you know, the Department of Mental Health that covers these things and, you know, 
the you know the, the you know we've got a you know it used to be that we had a public health department and a, and a substance abuse prevention department and a mental health department that were all completely isolated siloed things even though those issues are deeply interwoven let alone the justice department let alone you know so i mean it's we don't live in a particularly coordinated set of systems which makes this kind of prevention effort a lot easier but um but like ben suggested you know there's definitely some researchers that are trying to dig deeper into what are the the things that are our leading indicators for predicting people that might become homeless so that we can start to address some of those issues and and pinpoint those limited resources in a smart way um which is which is great progress i mean you know and, and the, the fact that we have leaders in our government like you were saying before who actually want to invest in evidence-based ideas they don't just want to say well you know, this is my pet issue and this is my pet solution to my pet issue. So that's what we're going to do. But they're actually trying to get, um, you know, academics to work with the community and the systems to look at data and tell them, well, who is becoming homeless so that maybe we can target some resources in that direction. And that's pretty that's a pretty remarkable place to be, um, you know, politically in this in this you know, city, in this state at this time. Thank you so much. So at this moment, we're going to start our uh, Q&A part of our conversation. Does anybody have any questions? If you do, raise your hand. I'm going to invite you to come up here, introduce yourself. Um, now no one's going to want to stand. Right? <laughs> come on up. Oh, we've got a brave soul. Nice. Right? Do you have a mic for them? So yeah, just... they should talk into the mic. Awesome. Thank you. Can you introduce yourself and the Department of Study that you're interested in? And then you can ask your question. Okay. Um, hello there. I want to thank you guys for coming out. And I learned a lot from you guys. And um, my name is Devon Williams. And I'm applying for the Master's in Social Work Program, specifically the SKY Program, Social Change and Innovation. And um, basically my question is, because I'm like heavily influenced and I'm all around with the homeless, and I'm actually um, doing the volunteer um, for LASA, the um, the count tomorrow at 7 p.m. from 7 to midnight at Alamar Park on Deegan. But basically my question is, um, what can we do now to help make a change? Because I fear that there are either going to be two, there's going to be two results, which is either similar to what happened in the Summer Olympics of 1984, where there was like a homeless suite and they moved all the homeless to Orange County. And um, the Olympics is coming back in 2023, so I feel that the results might be the same, will they just do a sweep and move everyone out? Or um, will there be like a state of emergency for the situation? Because it's very serious, you know? And um, I go to community uh, neighborhood council meetings and they talk, um, there's a whole bunch of stakeholders who come out and talk about the, there's like a whole bunch of littering, loitering, yeah. criminal, yeah. all this. And yeah, so basically what can we do now, you know? As a, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. thanks. That's, that's, a, that's, great a, great question. Question. that's a great question. Not an easy question to answer. Yeah. But. yeah. Well, well, I mean, just a few thoughts. Like, it's interesting to see. I mean, what I appreciate about how the money was proposed to be used and is being used right now is to invest in permanent solutions, right? So we know that permanent support housing is pretty effective, and that's where all the money has been going. The problem is that's not gonna work fast enough to see a dent in the numbers, right? Because the, they're so big. 
And so, the, so then there's been a lot of issues around um, why don't we invest more in shelters and temporary solutions and, and, you know, maybe not a bad idea, but for every dollar you spend on that short-term solution, you're not able to invest in a permanent solution. And so that's a tension I think politicians have had and trying to figure that out. And so, you know, now there's, there's a proposal to have, you know, California be a right to shelter state, which would sort of force cities and counties to just build a lot of shelter, um, but there are a couple issues with that. And just because you build shelters doesn't mean people are going to go, right? And if you don't do it in the right way, and it's not a better alternative, if you have too many rules and restrictions, people are going to opt out. Um, and we, we see that all the time. So you really need to, to empower people to participate in this process, people who are going to be affected and hear their voice. Like, what if you're out on the streets now, would, would you go into a shelter if you had to, for instance, what we talked about? you know, leave your companion out. I think we know the answer to that. So we need to figure out the, the right policies. So so those are issues. And I think that the concern is that we'll build these shelters, people might not go, and then we'll go down the road of criminalizing homelessness and forcing people to your point and making these sweeps. And and right, so, so I, I worry about that. But I think to your question about around like, what can we do? What's really interesting is that e even uh, I live in Atwater Village, uh, and you know there are plenty of people who have uh, talked to me and can complain about the issue. And as soon as they talk about building a you know a supportive housing um, building in our neighborhood, all those people are saying we don't want it. We don't want it here, which I never quite understood because you know your neighborhood has plenty of people that are already here. They just don't have a place to go. But now you're objecting to them having a, having a home. And so I think really making sure that um, people are held accountable and you, ex you know, I, I don't know if anyone's on next door, but it's a, it's a chaotic place to visit. Um, and I tend, I try not to, but every once in a while I will engage because I feel like part of my, you know, what I should be doing is, is sharing some of this and voicing my opinion that it's really important. And actually, if you look at, there's a really nice website that the county put out that shows where there's concentrations of homelessness and where there's ho housing planned. And you can see plenty of areas, a lot of them are unincorporated areas, where there's no housing currently planned. There's lots of money, but nothing's slated. Now, why is that? I think that's a lot of political will. There, you can see that there's a plenty big homeless population. So why aren't there, why aren't there developments there? And I think that's because people don't want them. They don't, you know, but, um, you know, that's the that's the part, you know, you call it NIMBY or whatever, not my backyard. But I think that's, you know, I, I, that's something we can all do and sort of uh, support support these projects. Yeah. I mean, when you asked your question, do you mean what can we do as a community or do you mean what can we, what can you as individual citizens thinking about uh, as a community? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think... Which, which I think, which I think is great. I mean, because I think you know, part of the part of my answer about as individual citizens is like Ben was suggesting, sort of being part of the voice of sort of compassion and empathy, um, and and educating you know other other uh, people who you know about this. So I mean, I think that one of the one of my so. Uh, I decided about three years ago to stop driving in LA traffic and just take Uber everywhere. So I have a lot of random conversations with Uber drivers. And I feel like one of my daily 
uh, at least weekly, if not daily, um, <clears throat> issues is around educating and enlightening people around what is the reality of what's happening with homelessness in Los Angeles and trying to try to project and generate some empathy because, you know, ultimately people who are experiencing homelessness are people mm -hmm. who are experiencing homelessness, right? I mean, I have personal friends who have lived on the streets. I have relationships with people who are, you know, research participants and clients that worked on projects that I still have relationships with, you know, years later because they're human beings, you know, these are, these are, people and, and, you know, and, and I think that there is a dehumanization that we use when we talk about the homeless, right? And I mean, I'm not a language warrior by any stretch of the imagination, um, but, I, but I do think that um, trying to engage with people who you know around being empathic and trying to be supportive of efforts, like you were suggesting yourself, that, you know, you're going off into working on the homeless count this this, uh, you know, this week. I mean, that's awesome. I mean, I think that those are really, those are very tangible, real opportunities. There's lots of organizations that, you know, are, are desperate for volunteers that want to work to, to, you know, provide services and, and, you know, services, outreach, all kinds of stuff. So there's lots of individual opportunities. And, and, and I think Ben, you know, outlined some of the issues and challenges for, for us as a city. And, we, you know, we've been talking about some of those things, but I, I think that you're right to be fearful of, you know, if we are not successful in, in, in addressing these issues, that, that there may be pressures, either if it's the Olympics or just impatience, that there's going to be a desire to, um, you know, force people to move from the places that they live. And, you know, the reality is, you know, if you live under that underpass in a tent, that's your home. That's where you live. You may not have a house, but you, that's where you live, you know? And, and that's, um, you know, I understand that every once in a while there are public health mandated cleanups that have to happen. But the reality is that when that happens, you know, individual human beings, just like you and me, have their stuff taken from them and thrown out because it's deemed as a nuisance or a public health crisis. Like, I wouldn't like it if the government came into my house and threw out my shit. Like, that's my stuff, you know? And like, that's, that's the, but that's what we do when we, when we place people in these categories and we dehumanize them. And so I think that one of the greatest things that I saw happening the, the years that I've, I've helped with the, on the count um, is, is just seeing people who hadn't done it before have this experience of interacting with, with people who are experiencing homelessness and coming back from it saying like, oh my God, there were such wonderful people that we just talked to. And it's like, yeah, you, you, they're human beings like you, man. Like it's not like we're, we're not aliens just because you're living, you know, in economic crisis, you know? And so it's, um, and so I guess I, I answer your question with a little bit of what can you do as an individual too, which is there, there's a lot of, you know, day in and day out stuff that, that, that we can do, even if it doesn't feel like it's big, because I think there's so many misconceptions and so much prejudice um, against people simply for the fact that they've fallen on hard times. You guys talked a lot about the homeless count. How do we, how do we get involved in that? Well, so um, there's a count going on tonight. Um, would you like to share? Yeah. Um, I think we count for the 
If you sign up, you can choose, you know, they'll tell you where the deployment sites are and there's a video that explains what you'll be doing and there are plenty of people out there and you go out in teams and, you know, it's, it's, it's perfectly safe to, to do this and, um, and yeah, and, and a lot of times they'll identify places where there's, a, you know, uh, not enough volunteers and so that's important too just to make sure that all of the areas are covered. Awesome. So we'll do two more quick questions because I want to respect your time. It is 10 minutes until our event is over. Um, did you have a question back there? Come on up. <laughs> come on up. It's like the price is right. You got to yeah. come on down to, this, to, the, to the stage. Uh, thank you, Dr. Hensworth and Dr. Henwood and Dr. Rice. Uh, my name is Tyrone Carter. I'm a senior at uh, Cal State Northridge. I'm majoring in psychology and Africana studies. I'm also the chair of the University Student Union Board of Directors there. We deal with a lot of homeless youth there. Um, my question is, is that um, we talked about um, homelessness and we talked about um, some of the issues that have brought it about and stuff. And we know that historically racism, oppression, white supremacy has brought about a lot of the homeless issues here in California and actually all major cities throughout Los Angeles. Um, I guess I want to know, therefore, what are your thoughts on the need for more culturally informed interventions considering race as a factor in order to be of maximum effectiveness? That's my first question. Mm -hmm. Okay. My second question is, and it's a real short one, is actually the $1.2 billion, $600 million, how much of that money was allocated or did USC try to get any of that money to help people like myself pay for that 111 tuition here at USC. Because if you're going to, if you agree with culturally relevant um, interventions, you need to have people of color, particularly African and black males, since African Americans are highly affected by homelessness due to racism and oppression. So how much of that money was it or was it any of it? No, you raise two really, really, um, important uh, questions and, and, and so one of the issues that I've become really uh, deeply invested in, in the last couple of years is, is actually these issues of, of race equity and, and we've, we've expanded the, that to include also some issues around sexual minority um, and gender equity as well but, but really as you point out the burning issue is that um, there is an enormous amount of race inequity around homelessness. I mean 40 40% of the homeless uh, population of Los Angeles are African-American, and I believe it's 9% of the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles are African-American. Those are also disproportionately African-American men, right? And so I've been actually engaged in a project with um, LA, with LASA over the last couple of years to really try to understand what's happening in terms of are resources being allocated fairly? Are the outcome, and more importantly, I think, are the outcomes fair? And, and there you get two different kinds of answers, actually, it turns out. And so some of the, some work that I did using some, some data from uh, a, a national uh, database that I have, so not just LA, what we found is that by and large communities are allocating housing resources proportionally um, when it comes to race issues. So if a 40% of your, of your community 
of homeless individuals are African-American, 40% of the, of the housing intervention dollars are going to African-Americans. That doesn't mean that, that 40% of the successful outcomes of those interventions are African-American individuals. There becomes a much thornier, more difficult issue because while some of the interventions that we provide for homeless individuals, like especially permanent supportive housing, which is this model that Ben talked about where there's you know, time, there, there's not a time limit to how long you're there. There's a lot of case management that goes along with it. There's a lot of supportive services there. It tends to be run by the communities themselves. Those programs seem, there doesn't seem to be a lot of disparity between African-American men and other men or African-American women and other women in terms of how successful they are in those programs. But what really starts to, where things start to get more dicey is when you start to get out into private rental markets where, again, kind of the history of racism and uh, is, is at play. So anecdotally, a story that was told to me that I thought was really kind of captured the dynamic really well is like, you know, I had some youth provider, uh, housing provider folks that were talking about some rental subsidies and they're talking about the, some, of the, some of the young people that they're working with and like, yeah, you know, when my clients were African-American young men age 22, when, they have a, when that guy has his buddy over for the night to hang out, the neighbors assume that he's having a drug deal and they call the cops. He gets called, the cops get called on him twice. Both of them are unsubstantiated. He's not dealing drugs, but the two police calls are enough to get him evicted because he's a nuisance to the, for, for the landlord. If it's a white kid who's doing the same thing, the neighbors assume that he's playing video games and he's fine, you know? And so these are things that we need to think about. So what we need to be thinking about is not just an egalitarian distribution of the dollars, but we need to be thinking about when we're giving interventions for, for different communities with different sorts of experiences of, of sort of historical racism and different sorts of opportunities in the job market, different perceptions that neighbors are going to have, like, which is the right interventions to be handed to those folks? So maybe part of the solution, and this might be overly simplistic, but it's at least like a, a, an initial dart to throw at this big problem is like, well, if the permanent supportive housing interventions are ones that are not suffering from these racist sorts of outcomes, then maybe more of those resources need to go to more African-American clients that are waiting on these on, on our lists and that because this is an intervention model that we have um, you know better success rates for so I think we need to be thinking about this very deeply now the other challenging thing that you asked is is USC getting any of that money and is it going to help us to pay for tuition for students so none of those dollars that are going to solve homelessness come to USC I mean I think that the you know you know we, those dollars are really going towards funding you know, housing interventions and housing programs. And, you know, we as, as faculty work in collaboration with, you know, LASA on certain projects like the, the count or like this other, you know, project that we were talking about on housing allocation. But, you know, that's not really, um, you know, that's not really dollars that are coming towards students. I mean, one thing that USC, the School of Social Work, does do a good job of is trying to provide a lot of financial aid resources, especially for people who come from uh, backgrounds that, you know, are, are less affluent. I mean, I think um, paying for private education is always a challenge, right? I mean, this is, an, and, and uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, USC is a, 
is, you know, while an absolutely wonderful program, it's expensive, you know, and, and so, and, and part of you, you know, your, your own personal calculus is going to have to be, you know, the benefit of taking this on and the opportunities that you get and, and, you know, how are you going to afford it? But there's a lot of financial aid that's offered, especially for folks who need it um, at USC. So don't think that just because the tuition has this gigantic price tag, that, that necessarily means that you are going to be stuck with all, with all of that. I mean, USC as an institution, the, the university itself, while it has the highest tuition of any private university in the country, it also gives the most financial aid of any university in the country. So we're, we're in a fortunate position where we have an enormous um, endowment in this university, which provides a lot of uh, access and resources to, to folks. So, um, yeah, and, and we actually have been advocating because there are, there are specific programs. So there's like a mental health stipend program that you, know, you can come in and it offsets a lot of the tuition. Uh, with the agreement that you'll work in a DMH clinic uh, once you graduate for two years to, to offset that. And we, we've been trying to, um, you know, advocate that given the shortages in homeless services, you know, can we get the county, and in this case it would be the Homeless Services Authority, to have a similar type of program uh, in, the, in the homeless sector. And so... That's a conversation we've had two or three times, and you know, each time we get a little bit further, but they they have not committed. But you know, we keep trying because I do I do think that's important. It's going to keep coming up uh, uh, because we need trained people out there, and there are shortages. And I think at some point they're going to realize, you know, the the outcomes are going to suffer if they don't yeah. if they don't find a way to attract people into it. And also to your point about, you know, it's important that people who are in the in the field doing the work are also part of the communities that are impacted. Absolutely 100% true. And I think that, um, you know, the school, so, you know, the Suzanne Dorak School of Social Work, like we're really committed to having a diverse student body because we believe in that. And, and I think, and it's not, and, you know, our student body is so, is so diverse that it's not at all sort of a token sort of idea you know it's really the, like it's a very diverse student body and so I think that and, and there's lots of caucuses student caucuses that are you know uh, they have all sorts of different you know identity groups from you know racial or racial and ethnic oriented ones you know sexual orientation oriented ones interest group oriented ones so there's lots of communities that people who um, I think are looking for this educational experience but also looking for a community of like-minded people from similar backgrounds. There's lots of ways that people find peer groups that can be supportive of them in this space. I mean, it's a really, it's a really amazing community of students to be a part of. Um, yeah. And so while it's a big private university, which might feel somewhat intimidating for some folks from different kinds, you know, backgrounds that aren't from, you know, wealth and privilege, you know, this, you know, this is a very diverse university and, it's a, and especially in the School of Social Work, that's the case. So. Our faculty is actually pretty diverse, although we're not a uh, great representation of that. Speak for yourself, way. man. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's no, it's, it's it's very true. Yeah, so yeah, you you got the two the two uh, middle aged white men talking to you this evening, but you know it happens sometimes. Sorry. So unfortunately, we don't have any more time for additional questions. We want to thank you all for being here. Thank you again, Benjamin Henwood. And Eric Rice for being here and having this conversation with us. Thanks to all of you. Thank you, guys. Yeah, thank you. I hope you come. <laughs>